0: Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good.
1: When are we going to start it?
0: Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show & Tell. Welcome to TV Show & Tell, your tour guide to the bustling backstreets of the TV industry. I'm David Boddicum, I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London.
1: And I'm Justin Scroggie, known internationally as the Format Doctor.
0: And in today's episode, we talk to freelance director Thomas Dark-Holland. Thomas has a wide-ranging CV, from the specialist factual show Meet the Humans, to primetime LE hits like Saturday Night Takeaway. Our chat goes into the ins and outs of something of a specialty of his, the ever-popular strand that is the Hidden Camera Stunt. Our main topics today are the diminishing value of TV prize money and the thorny issue of using AI to generate new ideas. And it's welcome back to Justin who once again has been flying the flag for Britain at the uh, international TV markets. Where have you been this time?
1: This time David I've been to Miami in Florida to an event called Content Americas, part of C21's global set of markets and conferences around the world. I think the point of Content America's is to bring North and South America together. Um, But to be honest with you, it was primarily Latin America represented at the downtown Hilton in Miami. Mm -hmm. So it was very Spanish speaking. Admittedly, I was there with a Colombian colleague. So most of the people that we met were Latin speaking anyway. But yeah, the general everything, the whole atmosphere about it was very Latin American. All the sessions were in Spanish, and um, all the content that was talked about was uh, was, was from Latin America. What, what genres does it cover? Oh, everything. I mean, it covers uh, entertainment and drama and doc. Um, though you know, drama telenovela is the major currency of that part of the world, so. So I did go to a session which was called Opportunities for Entertainment Formats in Latin America. I think the main thing that I pulled out from it possibly, you know, from what because it's coming from my own perspective was the importance of drama and emotion. So what the people on stage were saying was that if you're going to adapt a format into Latin America, you've really got to think about what they call the emotional map. Which is to say that you're making a unscripted show in a country dominated by telenovela. And telenovelas, for people who don't know, are basically limited soap operas. So they're soap operas that last, you know, anywhere between fifty and a hundred episodes, and then they end, usually with everybody dead <laughs> or married or both. <laughs> but they're very emotional. They're, they're very heightened drama. And that's the context into which you're putting, you know, a game show or a reality show or whatever. So if you're going to bring these shows into that world, then you've got an audience who's very, very hungry and expect, expectant for um, heightened drama. So as you know, I came rather late to the realization that whilst devices and mechanisms and formats are incredibly important, I finally realized that they're purpose was to generate emotion it isn't sufficient to arrive at a decision point the decision point has got to be emotional yeah mm-hmm. when you're doing stuff for latin america you've then got to make that decision point that emotional moment as heightened as you possibly can and then double it and then treble it and then quadruple it mm-hmm. um, and i found that actually very useful because it, it actually allowed me it has allowed me to read um better Uh, the content that I, that I see from that part of the world.
0: I see. So it's like, it's not just a case of who's that hiding in my bedroom cupboard? You open the cupboard and it's, oh, it's my brother who's also
1: a goat. It's like, it's it's, it's, (laughs) It's it's my brother who was married to my best friend who, who he killed (laughs) along with the rest of the family. Yeah. During the earthquake. Yeah. It's absolutely. And, um, the other factor, of course, is that programs are considerably longer. So you may well be taking a half hour or one hour format into a country where episodes have got to run for two or three hours. Mm. So again, you really need that reality content to, to boost the, uh, boost the story, boost the drama, boost the entertainment. Mm -hmm. So I think that was probably one of my, one of my big takeaways from it. There was one person on the panel who then said, Yes, but if we paid all this money for this format that works, we've got to make sure that the, you know, we do the things that the format bible says to make the format work. But I think even allowing for that, uh, the overriding point was big up the drama.
0: Mhm. Well, it's been a dramatic week uh, for the British television industry because uh, Channel 4 have announced job losses of 18 percent of their workforce that's about 240 jobs uh, which includes finally leaving their uh, totemic london hq with the huge number four outside it uh, which is um, very sad actually It's a, that's a, v- a very seminal moment i would say um, well, I was there when we moved in.
1: Right. <laughs> so, so I was actually working for Channel 4 when we moved in. Ah.
0: Um, Wasn't there something about plant pots or something?
1: <laughs> yes, well, there was that. So one of the, uh, as you know, one of the rules of architecture is that when you uh, have an architecture, when you commission an architectural firm to build a f- building for you, um, they technically own the building for the first year. Um, that allows the buyer to insist on any snagging to be done. But as I discovered, it cuts both ways. So we moved in and, you know, stuck posters on the walls and put pot plants up and things like that. And then the architect came around and told us to take them all down because <laughs> we were spoiling the line, apparently spoiling the line. <laughs> the other thing I remember was that, um, Michael Grade was head of channel four at that point. And, Or at least the point at which we were being consulted about what we wanted the new building to be like. And the one thing he said was, there will be no bar. <laughs> Let me guess, like about five months later, they put a bar in. <laughs> no, they didn't actually. No, it was, it was because having grown up, you know, in an entertainment family with Lord Grade and Lude Grade and everything else, he'd seen so many careers ruined at the BBC bar. Ah. But he said, I am not going to facilitate that. There's lots of pubs in Pimlico. You can go out at lunchtime, drink as much as you like. It's nothing to do with me. But I am not going to provide the means to ruin people's lives. Ah, interesting. Because I did
0: go to a screening there once, and we went downstairs. And there was drinks provided, but it was all shipped in. It was all in like ice buckets and crates and things. So that explains that. How interesting. Mm. Anyway, back to the story. Oh, well, uh, I was just going to also say that uh, RDF are uh, closing. So that was uh, one of the labels that Banijay uh, mm. was now in control of. They are a company that was the byword for reality formats or light entertainment formats with things like Faking It, Shipwrecked, Wiveswap, heap Challenge, uh, Secret Millionaire. Um, that kind of genre perhaps is on the Downswing at the minute, and obviously with things like uh, Eat Well for Less, uh, which is as we mentioned uh, just the other day, has uh, got cancelled, and that was one of theirs. Uh, Only Connect is one of their formats, which they've sort of in- actually inherited from a an, an indie that they bought in turn. So that'll probably get moved sideways to another mm. Um, mm. production company like Remarkable. But again, that's another another yeah. major label gone.
1: I think. What's sad about the Channel 4 situation is it's happening alongside um the intention of, of Channel 4 to start doing in-house production. Mm. Um, you know, if, if Channel 4 wanted to deliver a double whammy to the independent production sector, they couldn't do much worse than, than get rid of jobs, move their, head, close down their headquarters and take it production in-house. I mean... You know that has to be the final nail in the coffin for whatever independent companies are left, but you could say
0: iTV did that by closing down all of their local studios and then doing a lot of their own shows in-
1: house. So. Oh yeah, but that still had the same effect <laughs> you know, they may have done it, but uh, it was it was still pretty devastating and uh, but I think it's diff- slightly different with channel Four because this was their brand Channel four was set up by Parliament to be a publisher broadcaster. Yep. that was its function, and that was its identity, and it's been very proud of that identity. The only things it produced in house were things like comment, like this, which I used to produce. That's why I worked at, at Channel Four because I produced comment, the little um, public access show after the news. But the news itself was made by ITN, and so you know, to start talking about taking shows in house is completely radical. Of course, it's got to go through another act of parliament uh, to be allowed to do that. Mm. Um, But it seems fairly likely that's going to happen.
0: Another thing that's cropped this week is a, a kerfuffle on the business show Dragon's Den.
1: Yes. So this is an interesting one. So the person who was pitching claimed that the product she was pitching had healed her from ME. And that she'd been basically housebound unable to walk for about five minutes, was told that she'd never recover, blah, 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 blah. Went on a personal healing journey um, in, with a set of things, including diet and acupuncture and herbs and ear seeds. I still haven't quite worked out what ear seeds are. Do you know what ear seeds are? Well, when I first heard that,
0: I just thought, are they sort of like magic beans? It's, just, <laughs> it's, 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 it's very much in the same category to
1: me. Anyway, whatever they are, um, she claimed that she had completely recovered, um, formed this company called Accuseed, and dragons were very moved by her story and very excited by the product. And it was a, I think it was a series or a format first that all six dragons made an offer because that was such a big moment. The BBC rather unfortunately then turned that into a viral clip <laughs> and sent it. Everywhere to say, look, this is a big moment on Dragon's Den, at which point the medical community piled in mm. and said, hang on a second, hang on a second. You know, there's no medical basis for this whatsoever. The reason I think it's interesting is how many spurious things have been pitched on Dragon's Den over the years? Mm. I mean, isn't, isn't that part of the whole snake oil element of the show?
0: Well, we know that a lot of deals that happen on TV don't actually go through afterwards for due diligence reasons and many, many other things. That's sort of, that is a now known thing and the audience are aware of that. I think the thing that bothers me a lot about Dragon's Den is that there do appear to be some people that just go on, say you can have 0.1% of the business for a million pounds yeah, no, and then and then they're offended when the dragons say, can I have 10% for my million pounds mm. and they go absolutely not and then they walk away and go that's a lovely piece of PR, we've just had seven minutes of our product yeah. on BBC2 um, Yeah, that,
1: that has changed, that has been a massive change over the years, it used to be, you know, can I have £50,000 for 40% the company or something, and as you say now. The the because effectively they they sit there with somebody telling them they're effectively valuing their company at three million or five million pounds when they've only sold forty products. Yeah, and the other thing is, was it the fact that the six dragons all um, competed to invest as somehow a kind of seal of authenticity? Mm. You know, was was that the thing that tipped the balance? If they if they if they'd all sat there and say, Well, hang on a second, you know, there's no basis for this da 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 da, da then that would have been valid for her to have pitched it. Yeah. but the fact that they all piled in did that somehow give it some seal of authenticity.
0: And then on top of that, the dragon that she chosen in the end was Stephen Bartlett, who is known for being interested in health. Yeah, right. And uh, you know, he's—I uh, just seen adverts for him advertising Huel uh, this week. So mm. Mm. Um, you know that he—he's in that space, uh, and so it's a known
1: figure. No, that's a very good point. But in a way, I think, you know. <laughs> History also relates that, you know, major serious investors put their money into things that turn out to be a disaster or undrew um, or um, unstable. And that happens too. So in theory, we could argue that we were just watching some dragons fall for something. Mm. So, mm. you know, so the fact that the BBC have had to firstly withdraw the episode and then put this massive disclaimer on it... Seems to me quite cowardly, really, because, uh, like I said, we are watching a business transaction between somebody with an idea trying to persuade people with money to invest in it. And whether they do or don't shouldn't actually have anything to do with the quality or authenticity of the product. Mm.
0: Well, it's certainly going to be a thing that they're going to have to change, I think, in future. Even though we, we know that these pictures go on for far, far longer mm. uh, than they appear on television. Apparently, some of them go on for like one or two hours sometimes, really? but, yeah. and they get cut right down. But, oh. um, just the time just flies oh. by. From the early TV hit Candid Camera to Trigger Happy TV to the modern day impractical jokers. Hidden camera pranks have been one of the most evergreen strands of TV entertainment. It's both an art and a science that poses a number of interesting challenges in terms of how to capture audio and video without giving the game away. Working as a freelance director in various genres, Thomas Stock Holland has made a name for himself as the go-to person for hidden camera hits. Let's hear from him now. And I'm pleased to say that Thomas Stark-Holland joins us now. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you for having me. Thomas or Tom, why do you not go by Tom?
2: Well, the name has been usurped by another Tom Holland, and um, I am currently going by my uh, name that I was given when I was born, which is Thomas Stark-Holland. Otherwise, people think that I'm Spider-Man, and lots of um, youngsters laugh at me and say, you're not Tom Holland. I know who Tom Holland. It's not you, so I've had to go. You know, back to the uh, back to the birth certificate. You don't get confused for the historian, though. No, 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 uh, never. Some people think I'm Tom Hollander. <laughs> <laughs> I don't look anything like Tom Hollander. <laughs>
0: well i mean you must have a very good disguise (laughs) and speaking speaking of disguises and pranks and things that's obviously something that you're involved with when you're devising a stunt let's say what level of planning and secrecy do you need to go into well
2: it Sort of depends on what kind of prank you're doing. A lot of the things that I've been involved in have been, you know, street hits, as we call them, which is literally you're just hanging around on a high street waiting for people to come along who look like they might be fair game for whatever the, you know, the joke is that you're sort of trying to spring on them. So so those, you know, the, the preparation that you would go into there is literally just having the team ready and, and, and waiting and having your communications all set up, so that uh, you can identify who the mark is that's what we the term we use is the mark, I and mean, we pretend that we're sort of hit men and out to <laughs> have to bump someone off, but actually we're just going to try and have some fun on a high street uh, and so you know your whoever's operating the cameras will know who we're targeting. whoever is your performer will know where to go and stand because obviously you've got no control over the the member of public who doesn't know they're being filmed so you sort of have to coordinate around them and then uh the, the one of the most important things that you you have to have is uh communications with your your production team who are going to run after that member of public who's looking a bit bewildered and plead with them to sign a release form because otherwise mm. we're never going to be able to put it on tv so so that's the sort of preparation that you'd go into and that's a kind of pretty standard sort of setup depending on how um you know how many people you are potentially going to hit in one day, you will build a team to, to fit around that. But on other types of pranks where you are maybe targeting someone who, um, you know, for example, I did a a, a show where we uh, were targeting a, a, the owner of a hairdresser and we kept on sending in sort of celebrities and other weird and wonderful people to, to her hairdressing salon. And that required a heck of a lot more Preparation, because you know we had to get on board her entire family. We had to get keys and access to her hairdressing salon so that we could get in there overnight and rig the thing with cameras. We had to find um, a neighbour who was a, who would allow us to drill a hole through their floor in order to <laughs> run cables upstairs so that we could all sit up there and and, and direct the action. Because you know you, you can do so much with technology, but if you rely too heavily on wireless links, as we all know the wireless link goes down, doesn't matter how how expensive mm, it yeah. is, it will disappear. So there's, it's always better to have you know, be tethered at some point to the cameras. So yeah, you know, as you can imagine, that takes quite a lot of pre-production in order to get yourself into the position where you can then sit above a hairdressing salon all day long and queue in celebrities and actors and have action happening outside and bring in for example, on that one, we brought in um, I think her son, who was you know had moved to America, and you know it was one of those kind of shows where she kind of got a very uplifting day, but never quite understood why. And and but 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 towards mm. the end of the thing, she kind of realised that actually someone had been messing with her with her day. Um, mm. it, it feels a bit clandestine, you know. You feel sometimes a little bit like you're invading someone's privacy, and I think that that's something that we are always aware of maybe not so much in the old days but these days (laughs) there's a lot of um, vetting uh, for want of a better word vetting of that person without them realising in order to make sure that when they do finally realise that they've been filmed all day long that it's not going to you know harm them in any way.
1: How did you go about that vetting? Presumably that's social media and things but also through through friends and family or?
2: It's absolutely essential, yeah, to get friends and family on board. You know, you really want to get the spouse and the boss in, involved. Then you, you, you know, you know that that person is prime candidate. And then it's, you know, who else can we collaborate with? And, and you know, by and large, you're trying to create a great experience for that person. And you just want to be able to push their buttons, and whatever those buttons are. So the more that you know about that person, the better. And And then as soon as you get any kind of feedback that you know where that is suggested that he may not take to this sort of treatment that's when we start considering you know that that may not be the right person to be performing this kind of prank mm. something that will last a couple of hours as opposed to a one-hit wonder I we did something once with Richard Maidley for Anton Deck's takeaway where uh, <laughs> he was um, supposedly interviewing photographers for his Richard Maidley calendar and uh, we we managed to get seven or eight photographers you know who all signed up to come around to his house that we would rigged with cameras you know but in in the vetting for that we just made sure that they were professional photographers and that coming around to someone's house would be a normal thing to do especially if that was a celebrity and and you know we, we didn't need to kind of go quite so deep because it ultimately was basically a professional engagement that they were being asked to attend.
0: So you've got a blank piece of paper you've been told to come up with something funny what makes a good hit?
2: I personally think that what makes a good hit is the reaction you get from the member of public. In preparation for this chat, I just sort of had a little browse back through the hidden camera shows that are on, on YouTube. And you, do, you need to go back to Beadle, You need to go back to Candid Camera, Just for Laughs, for example. You know, I think what you're really just trying to do is to get someone to stare with disbelief. And hopefully they'll be pointing their face towards the camera that you're recording them with, and that's where you get all the fun from hidden camera, because it's it's really measuring someone's disbelief at the, you know, the situation. That that that. I this one thing that really brings me to always come back to hidden camera shows is that that that, that just seeing humanity performing in its own sort of <laughs> environment, and and seeing what make brings joy to people, you know, and re- but it's and it's real joy. They don't know the cameras on them. You are doing something, uh, hopefully elevating their day in, in some way. And, and seeing that, being part of that and complicit in the process is, is one of the joys of, of filming covertly.
0: You, you mentioned Beatles about there with the late, great Jamie Beadle. Yeah. Who I met a couple of times as it happens. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember an interesting stunt that kind of went a bit wrong on his show where a woman came out from the supermarket and looked at the car park, and every single car in the car park had been rigged to be exactly the same as her car. So they had all the same model of car, the same colour of car, the same That's number plate, the same dangly thing on the reversing <laughs> mirror and stuff like that. That was one of the most expensive stunts that they ever did. <laughs> and mm. it, it, was, it was such a bizarre thing to happen immediately to her that she clearly smelled a rat. Right so is is there a technique or a principle that you have to use so that that things aren't so obvious so quickly?
2: I think so, yeah, because what you're trying to do is heighten the reality of that person's situation. So if as you say, like if their reality is suddenly heightened to a level where they just cannot believe that this is real, then they will start saying this is not real, and then it'll all be over. Uh, I mean, a friend of mine who I work with quite a, a lot compares it to how a magician uses certain things to convince their audience that something is happening and he's always sort of like you need to find a convincer and it's just about being able to wrap that story or wrap that person within the story that you're trying to conjure up and allow them to sort of be a passenger in that story for you know it may be uh, just a few minutes or it may be a couple of hours and so that their their reality that they're in is going in the direction that you want to take them to and then you end up by delivering a punchline of some sort that is part of the art of of getting a hidden camera show right it's being able to do that so that you get the right reaction but then the the the, the craft of it is making sure that you can capture that reaction and get it you know, full frame as, or as much as you can and and also get the audio of them saying whatever they say and whatever you need to bleep out. But at least, <laughs> as long as the audience know that they have just 100% bought into this world that you've created.
1: Talking about getting that reaction, I mean, I've done a little bit of hidden camera and I remember the very first one I did, I was very inexperienced and uh, the team that I was working with were very experienced. And uh, they. this was before small cameras were as broadcast quality as they are now. So they had cameras dotted around the place inside handbags and various things. But they also had you know, a bloody great camera on the shoulder. And I I looked at them and said, what are you going to do with that? And they said, well, at the key moment, we're going to rush in. And I said, well, isn't that going to spoil it? And they said, well, <laughs> no, because the person's so confused, they don't know what's going on anyway. But also, if we don't do this, you, you're, you're not going to have that
2: shot. So, we, in order to get those big cameras um, into into someone's face, we quite often do uh, a fake news report. So you might have one of the product, product members of the team <laughs> standing outside, you know, standing on the street. Pretending to be a newsreader, you know, and they'll be standing there with a microphone and talking into a camera, but the camera's obviously just sort of over their shoulder, so that you can use them as a as a blocker. And it, it's bizarre. People these days, you know, you, they don't see cameras as much as maybe they're used to. They're not mm. as it's not as unusual to see a camera on the street these days. People are always making films, so I think that it's much easier to make a hidden camera show on some levels these days you know the technology has come on leaps and bounds you know you can now get 4k or 8k sort of gopros that will capture amazingly you know from from a tiny little pinprick hole and you can get a great image out of them i, I once tried to do a pilot for itv this was after we'd, we'd had some success with um off their rockers and um uh, that, that was asked to sort of well, how can how do you up the game? How do you make it you know go one better than Off Their Rockers? Because Off Their Rockers was and um, you know, had a particular look to it that took hidden camera from those little pinhole, uh, slightly out of focus sort of shots that you, we were used to to being something that looked quite you know slick. And that was mainly because of the way we 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 shot it. The next level I tried to take the hidden camera to was to shoot it all in 4K so that we could crop in and get those reactions and, and and really manipulate the images you know and and take it through to you know final post and do lots of uh, nice fancy things to really bring out those those, those reactions the, the only problem is that when you're shooting in 4k and and, and you're recording at raw quality you end up with a heck of a lot of media. Can <laughs> you imagine like five or six cameras rolling for three hours at yeah, that rate? God. I think the post-production house we were editing in nearly fell down. It was just, <laughs> they, they just were like, we, we've, can't, we've, we've literally maxed out all our uh, capacity on this. So there's, there are practical reasons why we can't uh, shoot in super high resolution.
0: Mm. How do you decide how many cameras and how much coverage do you need? Because of course, if the mark suddenly turns in a direction that you're not expecting suddenly, and then they scream or whatever, and you haven't you haven't got coverage in that direction, mm. you, the, the whole
2: thing is lost. My first ever directing job was as a hidden camera director. I went from an an, an AP position to being a, a director in, in 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 a matter of moments, and 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 little did I know that I was picking the the toughest genre to, to get in because you you know you have no control over the situation and, and, and you know um i i went from you know thinking well the best thing to do in this scenario is to get as many high angle shots you know back in my my junior days get get as many high angle shots as you can because whatever happens that like, people can't block you then you'll always be able to get a shot on someone's face you're you know if you if you sort of have them within a triangle you're bound to be able to get that person and 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 after doing a, a you know shooting a, a few pranks in that way that was sort of for a um a show called swag which um sort of earned itself a kind of cult status for being one of the naughtiest uh hidden camera shows out there
1: tell us about the swag what was the premise of swag
2: so uh swag came about as um as all things do, uh, with a chat with someone in a pub. The, the legend has it, it happens to be an idea that Guy Ritchie had and he proposed it to Will and Dave at Monkey TV. Uh, he'd just had his motorbike stolen and he was really, really, really annoyed. And he said to Will and Dave, who had had a bit of form doing hidden cameras, he said, guys, can't you just come up with some prank show where you give criminals their comeuppance? Doesn't need to be, you know, vindictive and mean, but just make sure that you go and get petty criminals and show them who's boss, you know. And so they went off and pitched this idea to Channel 5. Uh, at the time, it was um, Andrew Newman was the Commissioner of Entertainment at, uh, at Channel 5, and he sort of said, yeah, do it. What, what are the ideas? And, and, you know, there hadn't been any shows in the past that had tried to catch criminals in the act. I mean, apart from, you know, serious shows where you would have... You know, hidden cameras set up for you know dodgy builders or you know, but it's always sort of current affairs and news. No one had ever done it for for comedy reasons. So we sort of sat there for a good few months just trying to figure out well how what can you do and how can you make people how can isn't isn't this entrapment? You know that was the one question on my mind. <laughs> Aren't we just making people criminals by showing them to be criminals? I and mean, there's all sorts of yeah moral issues that uh, we, we 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 stumbled through um but in, in the end um you know what we would end up doing was 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 just creating a, a lot of really silly pranks that were sort of framed in a kind of criminal kind of way no no one actually committed any crimes um <laughs> but the the way that we uh, we shot it you know and the, and the kind of characters that we had involved just made it feel very much like it was back in the day when guy richard just had you know lockstock and um those kind of shows so everyone was sort of in that you know cockney gangster kind of mode back in the beginning of the noughties. and we 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 sort of just riffed off that a lot of the time and so it it ranged from having a bottle of vodka left in a shopping center on the on the floor and if someone went and picked it up, they would be accosted by Cossack dancers. <laughs> no real reason through through to you know someone dressed up as a um, a community service officer and just told people off for doing the wrong thing you know or, or made made up the rules as he went along and then we did sort of some more kind of serious stuff where we you know we rigged up a car with special effects and we sort of convinced some guys to get in into it and try and nick it because we'd left the keys in the driver's side door as soon as they got into the car, we could lock it remotely and then it started to fill with foam. So it looked like there was a snowstorm <laughs> occurring inside the, the car. I remember <laughs> that one.
1: <Yeah.
2: laughs> and it was great fun. You know, it was a little bit edgy. We we, we probably shouldn't have been doing a lot of that sort of stuff. And, uh, and I don't think you could make that show now. But that was my first um, directing gig. So I, I left that thinking, what is directing all about? Because if it's about hiding behind, you know, bins (laughs) and hoping for the best. I'm not really sure if I'm going to be much of a great director here.
0: (laughs) Does that that have to be like a a moral of the story, whether it's a good one or a a
2: bad one in terms of punishment or reward? I I suppose, you know, then when when we were filming, you know, making sort of a comedy of crime, it just had to be funny. I don't think we were really that worried about, the morality of it. I, I I think that there was there were a few sort of issues that came up actually as a result of that show, in that there was well, there was one scenario that we had where we advertised for people to come and get married in order for that bride to be able to gain a passport. Mail order husbands in a way. And so we had this situation where these, you know, we put an advert in the newspaper. I mean it was as simple as that. Earn five hundred quid, come and get married. You don't only won't last very long, you know. Um, and so people came along, and we we had a sort of a actor dressed up as a vicar, and we duly married a couple of couples. And you know, the one person who created the great gave us the greatest sort of performance. He went on the show, and we told them afterwards that this was a you know a hoax. But the thing was that this guy didn't tell us was that he was a security guard. And so when his boss saw him on on TV participating in some kind of um, nefarious act uh unfortunately he lost his job you know so it makes you realize that although it was great fun and you know he was totally complicit in 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 the gag and, and knew all about it that you can't always predict what's gonna you know what, the result of, of of what your your uh mischievousness is, is, is going to be so you know there, there's been there's always going to be something that that flips you up Yeah, and you need to just... Yeah, I think that's why that show couldn't really be made these days, because we were sort of going headlong into setting people up and and sort of, in a way, allowing them to misrepresent themselves. And I don't know if you could do that these days.
0: Now, one trend that The Guardian newspaper has uh, picked up on recently with an article it published is the apparent reduction in prize money Shows that used to give away hundreds of thousands or the occasional million now seem to have had their wings rather clipped. So, do you think this is an imagined phenomenon or do you think this is
1: genuine? Oh, I think it's genuine. You know, there's definitely good evidence that, you know, of course, there's still things like Limitless Win and so on, which are um, going for the the big headline, um, life changing amount of money, but increasingly. I think shows have have trimmed back. Um, I mean, you can see that simply from you know what happened with million pound drop, which became the hundred thousand pound drop, you know, which was a massive drop. Yes, um, in, and okay, it moved to daytime, but it moved. To, that was partly because you know it was just too big a sum of money.
0: And obviously, we've seen recently things like Deal or No Deal, which used to be two hundred fifty thousand pound top box in the Channel Four days. It's gone onto ITV in a very similar slot, uh, arguably a bigger channel, and um, that's had the top box cut to a hundred thousand, as we said uh, last mm. episode. Mm. Of course, then the, <laughs> when you cross channels. It, from primetime to prime time, it can sometimes happen because Survivor on ITV had a million pound prize when, it, when we first tried it, um, yeah. and then. And <laughs> now it's gone to the BBC. It's rather had to, uh, shrink its prize budget to a more reasonable £100,000 because they don't want to give away too many viewers license fees, which is kind of understandable. <laughs> and I, I'm not suppose I don't think people going on that show will particularly feel like it's, uh, well, they're going to feel the difference in their, in their bank balance at the end of the day, but I don't think viewers are necessarily going to miss
1: the difference. No. One reason for it is that you, you know, the, the, the point of adding this enormous prize label to a show was to get more viewers and to get more um, eyeballs on the show generally. And I think evidence suggests that that ship has sailed largely that, you know, all the excitement around, you know, who wants to be a millionaire and so on on the first million, million, million pound prize doesn't cut any ice these days. And so arguably why put yourself through that pain if it's not going to give you more viewers? Mm. Secondly, that amount of money is not worth the same, is it?
0: Our old friend inflation. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I did a bit of research into this, actually. Um, so the, the old Huey Green show, Double Your Money, oh. Uh which is one of the very earliest ITV shows in the fifties. So, in 1955, when that launched, that had a jackpot prize that uh, you would win. You'd go on the jackpot trailer to win the jack, uh, the jackpot of one thousand pounds. I went onto the Bank of England website, and it pretty much is equivalent to these days twenty thousand pounds. So, yeah, it's quite quite a decent chunk of money. Uh, the, the the that was actually relatively. Uh, good cash prizes even back in the 1950s. That shows you the, 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 how the value of money has changed. And then, yes, of course, we have had a lot of shows that are still around, the Millionaire being the obvious example, putting a pound in the Millionaire square jar, um, <laughs> where you know, even though they've been around for whatever it is, 25 years uh, plus, the, the money tree is still the same.
1: <laughs> so even though inflation has gone up, uh, the Ooh. prices have, haven't changed along with it. Mm, that's true i think another factor in all of this is where game shows play because when Millionaire came along it started the process of moving game shows out of daytime into prime time where they had sat for a very long time and so we had a rather golden age of game shows in prime time which then required you know prime time level prizes and in recent years, game shows have retreated back into, or been pushed back into daytime, as reality and drama have taken over in the evenings, and so that's also necessitated a um, an adjustment in the size of the prize.
0: I think it definitely has been a change over the last sort of twenty five years. So obviously Millionaire was a big influence. Uh, we had a slew of. Big wins, largely because of that show and uh, knockoffs of it, uh, f- like from the year 2000 to sort of the decade from like 2000 to 2010 was a really good decade to be ooh, a contestant ooh. on stuff. Um, the number of people winning, like say a quarter of a million, was, was substantial. I'm uh, just looking at the UK game show website, and like just the 250,000 uh, pound winners uh, in that decade, there was about. Forty-four, forty-five, uh, and then the, the, there's uh, probably about twelve, half a million. Uh, there was four, five hundred thousand plus, and because of the things like Red and Black, ITV show that, that with Millionaire and the Vault and, other, and a, a few sort of like radio one-off stunts. Mm ideas um, there was about 20 or so uh, million pound plus winners and then yes uh, we've had recently a couple of million pound winners who uh, both couples work for the NHS apparently you can only win on limitless win if you work work big if unless your NHS workers I don't know ah, what that we is. See,
1: well, well, see that I'm sure it's coincidental but it does raise a, another point which is about the cultural shift of deserving winners because I think that's something that has also changed. We, in the era of money, 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 back in the day, um, anybody could win a million, and that was sort of a both democratic and also about, you know, greed and greed is good and so on. But I think the shift now, when people are working much harder for much less, I think that it's not entertaining to watch people who, who you feel don't deserve the money win the money, and or watch people win the money without doing very much to deserve getting it, mm. you know, which I think is another thing. If people have spent twelve weeks in the jungle um have <laughs> been away from home, have eaten lots of disgusting things and been eaten alive by bugs and so on and so on and so on, we can arguably say, well, if you've survived all of that, then maybe you deserve the cash if you've sat in a studio for an hour and a half and won a life-changing sum of money. I think there's quite a negative reaction to that these days.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, tacking on to the end of both of those points you've just made, and, uh, when, when there was a Red or Black on ITV, uh, the winner of that show was largely, well, entirely uh, selected on the basis of luck, uh, whether they chose the right sequence of Reds and Blacks to get to the end game. And, uh, that do you remember? There was one winner who, let's say, had a bit of a colourful history, oh, and yeah. he did he did win a a million pound prize, and so then everybody was sort of going, mm, why why is this person being given that large amount of money? Absolutely, well he was
1: yeah he was proven to have uh, a, a conviction for assault, and um there was a, a huge amount of pressure for for. ITB to demand the money back, but there was no legal right, no legal way in which they could get the money back, um, because he had served his time and his debt was cleared, debt to society was cleared. Mm. And, but you're right, and I'm, I'm sure things like that didn't help. Um, I think, and then the final cultural shift, I suppose, which the Guardian article also makes reference to, is, you know, what people will spend the money on. Um I remember the you know the very first winner of Big Brother, Craig, um won seventy thousand pounds and uh gave it to a friend for an organ transplant. Um these days it's you know hoping to put down a deposit on a house, you know which seventy thousand probably wouldn't get you.
0: Well, I, funnily enough, I, I saw a tweet somebody had done where they did the maths on this oh, yeah. uh, this week. And they said, uh, this is the state of the economy right now. When millionaires started, uh, you needed to answer question eight to get a house deposit. Right. Um, and you now need to get to question 11. <laughs> so the British economy has deflated or wow. ed, well yeah, inflated by, by three millionaire questions in twenty five years. I think that's a very
1: good <laughs> metric that we should use for almost everything, really. <laughs> we can uh, see that in the window of Santander. <laughs> <laughs> that's true.
0: And now it's time to go back to our chat with director and hidden camera specialist. Thomas Dark Holland.
1: Let's just go back to the craft of it for a second, because we were talking about the cameras and whatever. But, you know, just whilst cameras, as you said, have got smaller and smaller and, and higher and higher quality, I think with hidden camera, it's always about the
2: sound. Sound is really, really important. You know, you've got to be able to get a microphone as close to your subject as possible. And and as as we've discussed, you don't know where they're going to be facing. You don't know how you're going to be able to get that microphone near them. Um, Quite often what we'll do is we'll we'll put microphones, you know, radio mics uh, into litter. So quite often you'll find a Ribena can with a little microphone poking out of the top of it. We'll put them in takeaway cartons and, and 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 such like, and um this works really well because you can just drop that mic down near the the, the mark, and you know you can have a couple of them around and 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 when you know when, when we we're filming off the rockers, there was always a a call for the soundy to go in and, and and place the drop mic before we queued in the actor. The only problem with that technique. <laughs> is that there are some quite officious road sweepers out there. <laughs> <laughs> and there's more than one occasion when the Sandy was, sort of got through to me on the radio and went, right, we've got to stop, Tom. We've got to stop. I said, why? He goes, well, the microphone's in the back of a lorry being driven by <laughs> depot. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, so so getting a microphone as close as possible is really important. We always sort of double mic the, um, the actors um, so that they've got a mic for them, which is set to their level, and then you've got a mic that's like really boosted quite oh. high so that you can pick up whatever's being said. And, and you know, you, the the stuff you can do with audio in post-production these days is incredible. I, I'm just amazed at what can be cleaned off, you know, in order to get your sync nice and, and clean and, and audible. And that's the thing is you, I think you could almost make a hidden camera show without seeing faces, but if you didn't have any audio, you just wouldn't have anything at all. Mm. Quite often
0: you're making a separate package of stuff that gets put in another format for something like Saturday Night Takeaway. How do you get the style right to, to make sure that that what you're doing fits comfortably within the tone of, of the show you're delivering for?
2: Good question. Hmm. There's been a sort of a hidden camera style that's really, you know, has existed for a long time, which has sort of existed because you've either got big cameras being hidden long distances away with long lenses, or you've got small cameras being hidden in bags or on people's bodies or, you know, in objects that you can bring close to the subject. And that has sort of dictated the style, um, you know, because it's sort of technically what you can do, what you can, you know, what you can get away with. As soon as you can get a, you know, a decent camera and a decent lens up close and personal to the person that you're trying to film without them realising, that's when I think you've, you've started to crack, uh, you know, hidden camera and you can then move on to developing a style that is mm. different to that sort of, you know, covert cam kind of look. And that's we sort of tried to really push really hard for that when we were developing Off the Rockers, um, which was a show that um, started off as a, a, a Belgian format.
1: It was Benidorm Bastards.
2: Benidorm bastards! It was fantastically, really surreal. So the premise of it is basically the um, the comedy of um, the generation gap. So Off the Rockers uh, it's fronted by a, a gang of geriatric rascals. Um, they're all actors and they're all over eighty. I mean, I, I think we might have had one or two younger stuntmen for some of the stunts, <laughs> but honestly, the, the 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 core cast were all over eighty and they were all absolute troopers. Some of them were, you know, traditional, you know, actors and some of those were were people who we'd sort of found who just were great characters. And they would always... The the premise was that they would go up to someone, you know, who was at least 40 years younger than them and run a sketch that would involve getting some kind of uh, interaction with that member of the public, but it would sort of try and flip the generation thing on them. So in a way, a success would always be... If the old person had acted and behaved younger than the than the young person, so that, and then and then they would always have to walk away so that we could record their their reaction and it was sort of about the the joy of being young when you're you know stuck in an 80 year old body it, it was so we went through a couple of iterations um, in order to get that show uh, made because it started off as a BBC one pilot fronted by Ricky Tomlinson. <laughs> Which was quite quite bizarre, um, and that that didn't fly for for BBC for various reasons. And then we made a version with uh, for ITV, which uh, had Silla Black as the as the host, because by that stage they'd sold the format to uh, the US, and Betty White was hosting the US version of of their Rockers, and they they actually came up with the name off their Rockers. So it was interesting process to go from making a a, a sort of UK version of a crazy uh, Belgian show to then making a UK version of a crazy Belgian show that had been taken over by the Americans and then had been turned, you know, given a sort of American uplift. And what was lovely was that all the material that, that we had, you know, the, the ability to use had come through this sort of mad process of starting off in this obscure Belgian world and then going to the US where they'd sort of had a writer's room on it for months <laughs> and had come up with these fantastic ideas. And then we could borrow from from that. So... ITV was, you know, kind of a bit reluctant about putting a hidden camera show on tea time because they thought it would just look a bit grainy and a bit smudgy and a bit blurry. And, you know, because that's kind of what hidden camera shows look like. And they said it was just at the time when um, Made in Chelsea had come out, I think, or one of those sort of really luscious looking uh, reality shows came out and they said, can you make it look like that? <laughs> I mean, within reason, we can try. Um, so, we developed this, um, this technique of filming where we only used four cameras. And it was just when the, the Canon C300 camera had been released, which is um, essentially a, you know, quite a small 35mm lens camera, slightly bigger than your sort of DSLR camera, but it was one that could record HD video through a 35mm um, lens. So, you could get really nice, you know, a really nice image, r- relatively small camera. So we had these cameras and we thought, well, how are we going to hide them? What's the best way of concealing those cameras? Because you've still got a fair amount of glass on the end of it. You still need an operator mm. to be able to, you know, manipulate the, the lens in the camera and get it into the right position. You know, all these things are dead giveaways for here's a film crew trying to film a hidden camera prank show. How do we get around that? And what we did, and you know, we borrowed slightly from the Americans who sent us a few photos of their production process and what they had done was they would managed to um, hide one of their cameras into a push chair and I thought well <laughs> that's quite good because they were shooting from the back of the push chair and I don't know how they hadn't got a child in the push chair but they would definitely got something in the way to make it look like maybe the child had just gone off and run off to buy an ice cream or something but you know the debris of young children you know was the sort of uh, the camouflage and uh, that made me think well why don't we just take a pram <laughs> because a pram's a much better mounting uh, unit than a pushchair. A pram, you can actually attach a tripod head to the base of that. You've also then got a whole load of space in the pram where you can put all your camera batteries. Because when you're out and about filming, you're going to be draining those camera batteries like no one's business. Mm. So we end up developing uh, the the pram cam, which... Uh... <laughs> pram <Pram-care. laughs> <laughs> we we developed this pram cam. I got the art department to make up three pram cams um, using you know the sort of the bassinet, you know the, the newborn kind of prams. That's what we yeah. we used, and um, they've always got hoods on them. So we just cut a hole in the hood and stuck a lens through it. Oh. We then had uh, a couple of camera operators who were always looking a bit tired and a bit fuzzled because they had me in their ear saying you know go left, go right, go right. But they just looked like dads. <laughs> They just look like dads who didn't know how to cope with um with their newborn kid, you know, once we'd sort of realized that actually this was the ultimate cover for filming in a in a high street or in a park or you know any kind of public space, just have a slightly frazzled looking dad. he could wear headphones because everyone wears headphones these days. You know, it just enabled us to move around. So going back to your question before about how do you get the camera in the right position and how do you make sure that you get that camera up close and personal to the 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 subject you just have it in a pram and you just drive it up to next to someone and no one really wants to look at you because you're dealing with a three-month-year-old bundle of joy and no one wants to get in the (laughs) way of that 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 love that you're sharing with that crying child um so so you know we we shot um the first series of the itv version of off their rocker with these pram cams and they they stayed and that that's how we managed to get that glossy look to Mm. to the show Mm. then adding to that, we also had a sort of a a set of rules that we uh, would adhere to. And and, and the first thing is that, you know, we had to make sure that we were capturing a genuine reaction. You can do that with three cameras. But what you can't do with when you're shooting with um, three cameras is also get the performance of your um, of your actor, because you just you know, you need to have. Two cameras, sort of on close-ups of the mark's reaction, and you—you you, know—you're still out of control. So you—you're sort of fishing um, for these shots. But but what what we realised was actually it was totally fine for us to be able to capture the the mark's reaction and make sure that we got genuine sort of look of incredulity at, at, at our, our performers' um, crazy situation that the performer was putting them in. But then what we'd do is we'd go and get permission from the member of public, and 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 hopefully they would buy into it. And if they gave us permission, we'd then ask them if they wouldn't mind us doing a little reshoot uh, so that we would then train the cameras onto our performer and make sure that we got all of their lines right so that we could cut them in later. And then we were were always shooting over the back of the head of the member of public. So there was no sort of concern over us sort of recreating a situation that didn't happen. We we, we were just able to do it that way. And then we could obviously be a bit more overt with our our technique. And the one thing that was quite bizarre about filming with um, prams is that we, we we hardly ever got rumbled, Ooh. sometimes we had the prams we were sitting at a cafe and we had the prams literally on the table next to the person who was being filmed. You wouldn't have got much closer if you had cameras out on tripods, and you could see these lenses coming out of the hood. <laughs> People just don't look, yeah, and it's absolutely incredible it made really made me realise how you know how sort of camouflage works you know and it is it's 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 about hiding in plain sight mm. you know it's it really is uh, the only time that we kind of got into trouble really with the pram cams was one day when um one of the batteries uh i think went down or, or or one of the the wireless links went down and we there was a couple of us all crowding around this um pram looking concerned and what and and a bit pensive and suddenly a lady ran up to us and said i'm a doctor i'm a doctor can i help <laughs> <laughs> and she thought <laughs> Obviously, she thought that we were kind of all a bit fretting because of the uh, the baby in the pram. But then when we showed her our <laughs> C300 baby, she just looked at us and was like, I, you know. And, 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 but I just remember thinking, oh, God, that that, that that is something I didn't really expect to happen Brilliant. at all. But, you know, Brilliant. this is one of the, the joys of uh, doing something quite strange on the high street with a bunch of <laughs> middle aged men and uh, and and a, and a few prams with full of cables. Well, we're going to
0: let you uh, go and uh, play with your prams, <laughs> <laughs> and you'll be back for a show until later. But uh, for now, uh, Thomas of Holland, been fascinating talking to you. Thanks for joining us on TV Thank show. And thanks. thanks, Justin. Thank
2: thanks,
0: thanks, David. So, Justin, uh, I thought we would finally grasp the nettle of the thorny issue of. AI and its impact on television, and uh-huh. luckily, I believe you have experienced a conference about this recently.
1: Yes, well, I was at two events, actually, in Vienna last month. The first was called CIMIX, which is a creative industries conference organized by the trade and industry organization in Austria, uh, which was bringing together people from different creative industries into a, into a day of uh, of sessions. Um, there was a very, very good detailed panel about the role of AI in creativity on that day hosted by my, our friend Tony Gregory. And then the following day, Tony and I did a uh, ideation masterclass for selected producers in Austria, um, where we also talked about AI. And for that, Tony put together a kind of, uh, checklist of, um, using AI as a creative tool, which I thought might be a useful thing to talk about here, really. So, number one, remember, AI isn't creative. It is a statistical tool. Therefore, AI is about what already exists. Creativity is about what doesn't yet exist.
0: I've used AI in a number of different circumstances. And in some cases, it's been extremely useful. And in some, it's been bonehead idiotic. Yes, and weirdly, I find that the more logical things are where it disappoints. Ooh. So if you say to it, like, can I have a reference for a particular fact? It will sometimes come up with a, a URL that's either <laughs> at best not relevant, or it could even be just completely made up. Like yeah. it just literally doesn't point to anything. Mm. When I have asked it to do something creative, let's say write an introduction for a, a TV show in the, in the form of a limerick. And this is a little bit about what the TV show oh. is about. Uh, when it's come back, I've just gone, I know that that's working based on a statistical algorithm, which says I'll start here and then I'll work out what the most likely word is oh. to follow after this. And it just does that for the whole thing after it learns what a limerick is. So it formats it correctly. I've nevertheless been extraordinarily impressed. With it coming back with the first chapter of a book, a limerick, uh, sometimes even a series of quiz questions, although some of those are a bit dodgy. Um, there's def- to me. It feels like there's something magic going on here that is creativity. And I'm, and, and I'm slightly weirded out by it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair enough. I, I think how impressed you are about these things slightly depends on your level of knowledge of any given subject really you know if i ask it to to give me a paragraph about some aspect of engineering and it gives me a very coherent paragraph i understand i probably think it's great when i asked it to come up with some rules about how to do a funeral for the church of england which is something i happen to know about it was so bland as to be almost unusable Mm-hmm. But to someone who knew nothing about funerals, it probably sounded very plausible. So I, I think that's a factor. I think the point of this particular point is that, by definition, it is drawing on things that are already out there. We know that. Um And yes, it's true that that's what we also do. That's how we ideate is by drawing on a range of experiences and so on. Um and formulating them into something new. But there is a difference, and I think the difference is in the second of these rules, if you like. AI doesn't understand feelings and emotions. AI has no soul, no lived experience, and doesn't understand why entertainment or humor work. Or as somebody at the session said, you know, AI has never gone on a bad date. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, what it's drawing on Might be 10 million books about jealousy, but it's never been jealous. Yes. And it kind of depends. If you were given the choice between those two things, you know, to base your reality dating show on, which would you rather base it on? And I'd rather base it on people's lived experiences rather than a machine who's read a lot of books. Number three is the time it takes to get AI prompts right is often longer than an experienced human undertaking the creative task in the first place.
0: Well, yeah, the actual process of, of prompting is really important, isn't it? It's, um it's. I think people don't realise that you can prompt and say, <laughs> "Look, I'm going to train you up in how something works, and then mm. get you to do it again." And yeah, that's, so if, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very big part of AI. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I think it's a learned skill as well. You know, I, you know, I regard myself as someone who's good at Googling because I've learned how to Google and I've learned how to ask Google things in a particular way to get what I want. So I'm, I'm finding the whole prompting thing quite interesting. Though for part of my ideation session, I did ask ChatGBT to come up with a list of book titles of nonfiction that were random. And what I wanted to do was to use the book titles as an example of you know you just use this book title as a as a way of coming up with a show, and what it came back with was probably the ten most popular books in the world you know Harry Potter the Bible mm. you know and about six Jilly Coopers so I said no those are too well known I want lesser known and we went on and on and on and on and on with prompts and eventually I got a list that I thought was quite good then I looked them up and of the ten three were entirely made up, Hmm. the title and the authors. I mean, Hmm. this is what's called hallucinating, apparently, uh, Hmm. and I call getting it wrong. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) AI can be and often is completely wrong. Yeah. So it's something to be very careful of. AI doesn't know what you want. AI can work fast, but it has no taste nor judgment. Uh, I think that's
0: true. I don't know to what extent it, it separates like the formats you need with the content you want. I find sometimes the best way of, of prompting it is to give it an example and say, like, here's an example of a quiz question. Please can you write 10 mm. more quiz mm. questions of this style? And then that way it, it can learn what the, the rules of engagement are. Cause sometimes what happens is I say to it, can you write 10?
1: General knowledge questions.
0: And it it will give me the questions, but not the answers, because he doesn't realise the answers are important.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a very fair point. I think what's interesting about that is that um and I think this goes back right to the core or the root of creativity. You know, I completely get the value of AI for doing something like that, or for video editing, or clip creating, or converting text to voice. There's lots and lots of really brilliant tools within the TV production world that it can do. But at the point where you're trying to come up with, with, a, with a new show, my big point is that the last thing you want is to reference things that are already out there. And mm. therefore, you're searching for something you don't know. And the Way that AI or generative AI works is to try to get you to be specific about what you want and to help you to do that. And very often those two processes are working against each other, I find. So I feel like AI needs to kind of kick in once you've got something you think, Oh, that gives me a tingle factor. You know, maybe there's something there or, you know, if you want to create dating show, don't ask AI to come up with an original dating show. Ask it for, you know, the 20 reasons why two people fall out of love with each other. And then it can go and re- mm. read 20 million books and come back to you with a synthesis you can play with. Which you know, is another of these points, which is if you're considering any form of AI, be sure why you are doing it. Mm. And I think Tony's point there was that AI is a rabbit hole, just as we know that Google is, and you can head off down AI and really kind of end up nowhere near where you started. And 14 hours have gone by. Yes, there's this thing called creative flattery, which was referenced at this session, um, which I rather like the idea of creative flattery, uh, which is the the idea that the more AI thinks it knows what it's what you're trying to achieve, the more it nudges you in that direction. Really? Hmm. Um, so, you know, because it's training algorithm is actually more sophisticated than you think it is. So it's trying to, it's trying to read everything that it can from you about what you're trying to do. And therefore it will take you in that direction. Um, and the problem with that is it doesn't leave any space for those surprises. It's why I always used to say to researchers, if I want you to research something, I don't I'm not asking you to Google it because I can do that. I'm asking you to ring up experts and talk to people because they're going to say things that Wikipedia don't say, and somewhere in some throwaway remark they make is going to be the nugget of an idea about something to do with that topic or that industry or that skill or that hobby, which no one really talks about or writes about. Mm. And that's going to be the basis. And, and you know, AI can't find that.
0: I do think that AI is limited in terms of it can come up with ideas, but it will run out of those ideas if you narrow it down to a particular task. So to go back to my other example if you say to it, write 10 science questions, some of those might be quite good. But then if you say to it, write 50 more, it will, after a while, it will hit a certain loop. I tend to find it hits like maybe after about 20 or 30, it will start to do things like, Au is the chemical symbol for which element? Ag is the chemical symbol for which element? Sn is the chemical symbol for which element? And you sort of go, oh, hang on a second, you just you just you just run out of ideas, and because you're somehow iterating, oh, that was a good question, so therefore the next one will be good, and the next one will be good, and 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 that might be fine ooh, for it, ooh. but to a human, you sort of go,
1: oh no, you, you're just babbling the same thing now. So that's really interesting because they also reference something quite similar to that, which was about pollution the data pool that because what AI learns gets fed back into that pool then you do do start to create those kind of feedback loops because AI tends to be biased to the information that it Mm. has fed back into that pool and then of course the danger is if that information is wrong um, and that's also getting fed back into the pool which then brings us to another point from the, uh, the list which was check mm. the legal position because when you do your own research when you're de- searching a tv format or whatever you know the sources from which you're getting that information when you use ai you don't and you are far more likely to start developing things that already exist or start using copyright material and so on and it's a very as we know it's already a, a massive issue.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, this is the, the crucial thing for me in, in terms of use of AI. It's, it's both uh, a incredible a, a tool, but also a, a huge threat. he possibly a huge problem because, <laughs> um, let's say you, you generate an image through AI, a graphic, and it might look like it's come up, it's generated that by the description you've, you've, you've given it um and then only later does somebody point out actually the the picture of that tree in the background is this artist's hand-drawn tree that it's just wholesale borrowed and it's still got the the trademark signature on the trunk or, or whatever that they've carved into it and they sort of go oh hang on a second yes now so the ai has pretty much literally copied the element of the picture so therefore there's a huge licensing issue
1: Mm. But what if, for example, you know, let's go back to Jeopardy where you give the answer and then somebody has to guess the question. That answer might be lifted as an entire sentence Mm. from a published document, which you've then taken wholesale without knowing. But then
0: when I see the output from AI and it comes up with some ridiculously clever, witty joke and... I Google that, and it's not on the internet anywhere. That's when I sort of go, "Wow, there's there's, there's something magical going on here hmm. that I don't really understand."
1: <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, th- there's definitely something magical, and I and I, you know, I, I think you know, Tony and I were very torn about this because we we want people to use their heads, not their fingers, to ideate, to you know, to to be creative. Um, but at the same time, we both recognize that, you know, as you say, the, the, the magic that's there and, you know, as with everything else, there must have been, you know, librarians that despaired when, you know, when the, when the Internet arrived saying, but you'll never, but you'll have all this information, you won't know what to do with it. Well, that's still true up to a point, but we've also learnt, you know, we didn't go on courses about it, we just learnt how to use it to achieve bigger and better things as well as, you know, dark and terrible things, you know, it is going to become a major part of all of our lives. Which I think just brings us to the last point from the list, which was supervise. Mm -hmm. Never let I have the final word. And I think that's a good guiding principle for anything you're doing with AI and, and as a tool.
0: So we're back with Thomas Stark-Holland and we asked people to bring in an object. So I'm fascinated to learn what you brought in to show us.
2: All right. So I brought in my safari suit. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Now, I've never actually worked on any natural history programming. Well, not as far as I remember anyway. But I do see making hidden camera shows a little bit like making natural history shows because the animals don't know you're they're being filmed, right? <laughs> when you're filming lions mating, they're not sort of wondering whether you've got their best side or not. And it's a similar sort of way. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're looking at human behaviour with hidden camera and, and trying to extract the joy of human behaviour. And I think it's the ultimate sort of reflection of, of, of humanity when you can get a hidden camera stunt right because it's genuine. There are no... You know, no bells and whistles that have been added to that person's performance. It is a hundred percent from the heart, and so I quite often see myself as, as a, as the uh, as the wildlife uh, director that I always wanted to be, <laughs> standing in a high street in a safari outfit, not drawing attention to myself at all, but looking at the the naked ape in its uh, natural environment and how similar is hidden camera comedy to to doing um, uh, real natural history shows. And I did once get the opportunity to uh, test that theory. Okay, yeah. So I was invited to make a program called Meet the Humans with um, Dr. Michael Moseley. Uh, A great laugh, actually. And um, he really wanted to get into the human psyche. And um, we made a, a, a... it wasn't quite a hidden camera show because everyone who kn- was on it knew they were on it but they didn't quite know why and uh, so there was a bit of an element of a hoax going on but unlike all of the shows that i'd made before which where the, you know the aim of the game was to get a laugh out of each situation because it was michael mosley and it was for the bbc's um science uh, channel uh, that goes up overseas um every every single prank had to have a scientific backing to it so there needed to be something that we were testing mm. in order to justify the prank that we were doing so we we sort of um ended up rigging up a, a country house uh, full of fixed rig cameras and um everyone who was invited uh, along thought that they were taking part in some sort of themed weekend so whether that was a, a business bringing their workforce along for a, you know team building exercise or uh if it was really sporty people who wanted to take part in a military fitness weekend you know they they were all brought in under you know one guise or another but actually what we were trying to do was to test out whether you know uh, humans can be over competitive or what is the na- the very nature of a business and the family bonds that, mm. are, that occur mm. between the people in it who, who run a business and, and so it's, it was really it was absolutely a fascinating thing to do but my gosh was it difficult to come up with entertaining pranks <laughs> that would also answer that question is this you know is this science and it, 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 I, I just I, I mean it was a very enjoyable program to to, to work on on many levels but um one of those kind of programmes where you think, I'm oh, just not sure if I'll go back to that particular <laughs> hybrid genre of trying to mix hidden camera pranks with, uh, with science. It...
0: Okay. Well, when now the youngsters hear the name Tom Holland, they'll go, oh, you mean that guy that, who's a bit like the David Attenborough of Swindon Town Centre? <laughs> and they'll know exactly who you mean.
2: I hope so, yeah, because look, we don't have to wear spandex to be called Tom Holland.
1: We <laughs> wear safari suits.
2: <laughs> <And> safari suits. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: Quite right.
0: Well, uh, Thomas Holland, it's been uh, brilliant meeting you. Thanks indeed for your time.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. All right, it's uh, four-minute format time. Uh, Justin, I've got numbers... One, two, three, four, five, six. Which one would you like?
1: Uh, I'd like number one, please, Bob.
0: Number one. We have to come up with a format with the word copy. <laughs> <laughs> so we've just been talking about copying. Um, and then for a bit of fun, uh, after the four minutes, uh, what I might do is, is, uh, enter that into ai and see what format it would have come up with and see if we can beat it <laughs> all, right. all right anyway so our 4 minutes starts now
1: uh okay so what does copy resonate how does it resonate uh copy makes you think of doppelgangers um you know people who are different people but look mm. the same um copy is what journalists how journalists describe the the text that they um submit for articles they send in copy apparently there's six people in the world that, that
0: look like each other for any particular person because there's just not enough dna variation in
1: us right so there's there's five other people that look like you in the world well there is the uh, format game of clones um, yes where which is sort of based around that um
0: so if you're trying to imitate something or someone mm. um, there have been sort of like uh, Chinese whispers
1: games yeah. isn't
0: there, when you have to try and mime things and then that person tries to copy that and then copy yeah. that
1: yeah there was a format that I know that was in development at one point I don't know if it got made about somebody about basically computer analysing dance moves by professionals and then using that analysis to train people to do the same dance move. Oh wow, that was, sounds very technical. Yeah, it was very technical. <laughs> it looked, it looked really cool, actually. Um, yeah. yeah, so maybe, so maybe there's a talent show. I mean, obviously there's lots of talent shows where you're copying somebody's actual voice and things like that. But maybe the talent is actually copying something exactly. I suppose that's the topic. it makes me think of Snack Masters, which is one of my favourite formats. Where chefs have got to copy a popular snack bar without knowing what its ingredients are and how it's made. And of course, they mm. can't bear not to add a dash of sangria or whatever their signature, <laughs> signature herb is or something like that. Um,
0: but the, of course, going back to the old generation games when you, like an expert would come and make a, a vase on a potter's wheel and, and somebody would then have to copy.
1: Ooh. Which I suppose um, is where Nailed It ended up, isn't it? Because Nailed It is very much a generation game of, you know, copy the cake.
0: I wonder if there is sort of a riff on all of what you just said there, which was that, like, somebody does something, uh, you know, let's say it's a pile of stuff that, that they move from one side of the studio to the other in a very particularly awkward way. Everything's tracked in mm. terms of the positioning of it. And you have to try and re- replicate those movements. Let's say, you know, oh, you could like have to car is driven around a track in a certain way. you got to remember the, the way that the car was, was driven and, and re- replicate the movements. And uh, perhaps a computer could say, you, you know, your, uh, rep- yeah. your copy score was 91%. Yeah. Or what or about
1: what What, what, my, what- the activity that I thought of when you said there was like a an FBI agent checking out a room. mm mm-hmm. You know, when they sort of were up against the door with their you know, their gun up and then they spin round and kick the door open and go in and cover all the different parts of the room. So it might be like a sort of two minute sequence that you watch and then yeah. you've got to try and copy what they did. And as you say, because we've tracked both movements we can actually give them a score.
0: Yeah, or it could just be like an ex you know, the expert just gives a uh, like an an eight out of ten score, depending on what, which things you remember to do and well, and whether mm, you did them well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's good. Well, uh, our time unfortunately is already up, but uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I I think we, we, there's a uh, bones of a show there called Copycat or something like that. Yeah, uh, the show where you have to copy what you see. All right, Justin. So just for a bit of fun, I've now put that into an AI system. Uh, I've said to it, pitch an idea for a new TV show about the concept of copying. This is what it's come back with. Uh, copy this heist with a twist. A team of talented mimics pull off elaborate heists by perfectly impersonating real people from high society art collectors to CEOs. The twist, they only steal items deemed ethically questionable, exposing corruption and hidden agendas while questioning the concept of ownership and originality. Each episode tackles a different target and a new moral dilemma, blurring the lines between justice, performance and identity." Just got a, that's that's gone very weird halfway through. The first half of it was quite quite similar to what we'd come up with. I thought
1: uh, the second half of it, Lord knows where it's got that. Lord from. knows where it went. From. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so yes, there we go. Supervise, <laughs> <laughs> supervise
0: exactly. Well, on that bombshell, that's that's the that's all we have time for uh, this week. If you want to contact the show, you can get in contact with us at TV Show Podcast on X slash Twitter, or you can email us contact at tvshowandtell dot com. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. and I've been Justin Scroggie, and this has been TV Show and Tell.